So this was a three bedroom, about a thousand square feet, single family home. We purchased it for 35 cash out of that 60,000 that we got back from the, the original Burr. Um, we renovated for about 20,000, so 55K all in. And this ended up appraising for around 80. So we were actually able to pull out more than 100% of our capital into this. Welcome to the House Hacking Success Podcast, where you'll learn the path to free rent and financial freedom through real estate. Featuring your hosts, Brad Labrie and Drew Klingler. Hey everyone, real quick before we start the show, Brad wrote an amazing ebook that will teach you everything you need to know about house hacking and living rent free. To get a free copy, text house hack all one word to 22828. That's house hack all one word to 22828 to get your free copy. Welcome to House Hacking Success. Today we have Brendan. Brendan, we're thrilled you're here. Brad, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, uh, let's get into your background a little bit because uh, before real estate, you you got into psychology and uh, tell us a little about that and your transition into real estate. Yeah. So when I uh, first got into college, I had this thought that I would kind of go the more traditional route, get a four-year degree, um, maybe get into graduate school with psychology and you know, do some sort of either consulting or some some level of um, counseling, even with psych. When I was an undergrad, I was kind of going through a couple different decision making where I considered criminal psychology. I considered um, doing business psychology, and that's actually the route that I ended up going. Um, so my entire undergrad, I was mostly focused on psych. Uh, Growing up, I had a lot of people tell me that I was really good with working with people. So at the time, that was kind of my main focus. And I really wanted to try to leverage that uh, in a career. So then going on into graduate school, I kind of did a little bit of a, a marriage between doing psychology and then my passion for business. And I went into a field called industrial psych, which basically um, helps put those two together. Those people help with consulting and human performance and uh, just motivation and really helping like companies maximize their their human capital essentially. That's awesome. That's awesome. So so kind of playing out in real estate, how do you see psychology in those that are successful in this industry? Because obviously that does play a huge role uh, in in making a sustained business here in real estate. So how do you see that playing out? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me the biggest thing is um, it's not so much the specific training or education I got in psychology, but I think for the same reason that I love psychology, I just love the interaction with people, understanding how they work, like being able to empathize with someone else and see their other side. I think in real estate that comes in all the time um, and, and really in any sort of customer service sales position, your ability to kind of switch your position around and understand where the other party is coming from. So as a real estate investor, um, this applies during the acquisition phase when you're looking to purchase a property. You know, sometimes people get flustered by the way a seller has, you know, certain stipulations or their speed with the deal. If you're able to kind of flip that around and say, okay, you know, what are they dealing with? Why are they not willing to negotiate? You know, what pain points might they have that I can really kind of nail down on and, and switch things around? I think it really opens opens things up and kind of, you know, transitioning to more of like the active day-to-day -day real estate when you're working with tenants. I mean, that's very much a customer service position in a way where you're trying to make sure that you're understanding their their side, their pain points, and you're doing your best to understand that and empathize and resolve it. So I think my background in psych kind of plays into that quite a bit where, um, you know, I, I just 
been exposed to a lot of the interaction and understood what's the best way to go through with any sort of issue that you're, you're having. Absolutely. So, uh, so let's speed forward into the job you you're at now. You, uh, you're well-versed obviously in house hacking. You've done a couple of those in the burst strategy. We'll get into that. You got a couple of duplexes under contract right now, but we hear a lot about like hard money and that's, sure. that's the industry that you work in. Talk to us a little bit about what hard money is and kind of how newbies can use that maybe in house hacking or just as yeah. a building a, a real estate portfolio in general. Sure. Yeah. So hard money. Um, so first I work for a company called fund that flip. So we are a hard money blender. Um, and essentially what that means is we make loans based on the hard asset itself. So being the property, um, be it a single family, a duplex, an apartment, whatever that is. Um, so the way it's a little bit different from a, a typical commercial bank where, um, there's more of a, a deep thorough underwrite of the individual and it's more of like a convoluted longer process with hard money. You can typically close very quickly. Um, and with, with us specifically, one thing that we focus on is, um, bridge loans. So essentially an investor comes to us, they have a property that they really like that might be a little bit run down that they're looking to, to turn over. So we're able to close on that loan typically in like a two to three week time frame and allow the investor to close at the closing table. We provide them renovation money as well. They're able to rehab the property and then pay us interest-only payments until they're ready to sell the property or do some sort of cash-out refinance to essentially satisfy the, the need of the loan. Awesome. And so what does that look like? You say you... Uh... You know, you you fund the renovation. Like, how much do you guys fund? Um, is it only eighty percent? Do you fund the whole renovation? Sure. Does it does it depend on the deal? Yeah, yeah. So it's a sliding scale. Um, it depends both on the deal and also on the borrower to an extent. So obviously, the people that are doing high volume with us that we we become pretty comfortable with. You know, we're able to kind of work a little bit more leverage in um, our max just to kind of set some sort of standard. We do up to ninety percent of purchase and a hundred percent of the rehab costs. So this is huge for. Um, the same way with house hackers, right? We're leveraging a very low money down payment to achieve a, a purchase of a large asset, right? With investors that are looking to do the same thing on the flipping side, they're bringing sometimes 10% of their money to close, to close on the, the property itself. We fund 100% of the rehab, they go, go through the process and then they sell. So it's a great way for them to be able to leverage a small amount of capital to be able to flip individual properties. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm certain that being in this industry and funding investors gave you a lot of confidence to do this yourself. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing for me and the one thing that really attracted me to fund that flip in the first place is I was trying to get an understanding of, of how this side worked as far as the money, the financing, the banking. I, I had um, also in undergrad while I was in school, I worked for a general contractor that focused on home remodeling. So I started to learn kind of the ground up process of how to manage contractors, how to put together a scope of work. And I, I became somewhat confident on that side of things, but the financing was kind of still this black box that I really didn't have a whole lot of experience with and only had doing, you know, one or two transactions up until, you know, maybe a year ago, it was all kind of new to me. So yeah, working at Fund That Flip and just understanding the hard money, it's, it's given me a lot of different contexts. I also get to learn from the investors that we work with what are their strategies how are they doing it and just learning you know different ways to to make it happen yeah absolutely absolutely so let's dive into your personal story tell us about that first house hack getting into it sure. uh maybe the mental hurdles uh and kind of you know everything that goes into how'd you find it how'd you fund that particular deal 
Yeah, absolutely. So before this deal actually came about, about a year prior to us closing on this, when I first got into graduate school, I attempted a house hack on campus where I was looking to buy a single family house, kind of do a rent by the room strategy. At the time, um, I only had like $15,000 annual income. So I wasn't able to get the, the financing out of fortune. I wasn't quite ready to bring on a partner. Um, I was kind of afraid of having someone else's name on the line for uh, what I thought at the time was like a very risky business venture just because I was so new and I really didn't understand. Mm -hmm. So fast forward about a year after that, I was coming up on the end of my graduate degree. I was ready to kind of transition, come back towards the Cleveland area. And um, we found this property on the MLS. And again, I was in school, so I didn't have a whole lot of money saved up and not a whole lot of income to be able to go to a bank and, and get a really solid loan. So I partnered with uh, one of my longtime best friends. His name's Dylan. Um, he had grown up in the city that we were looking to purchase in. I had grown up in the neighboring city. Um, we really liked the property. We, we, we toured it and needed some renovation work. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of a scary thing at first just to take the leap and, and make an offer and, and do something that was a little bit different. The thing that made us a little bit more comfortable on this property was actually located about two blocks from a, uh, pretty nice liberal arts college in Oberlin, Ohio. So we knew that even if we had struggles with any sort of tenant management or anything else, we had the college to kind of lean back on as far as having students in the area that we could market to and potentially rent to. So that gave us a little bit of a safety net that we were like, you know, we have enough uh, safety nets in place that we're, we're willing to kind of go through and make an offer on the house. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And and like you said, it takes a, a leap of faith and it takes a lot of confidence to do that first deal. Uh, and it is cool that you guys sort of, you know, uh, digested it that way that, hey, we do have a safety net. We do have people behind sure. us. And so that renovation, talk a little bit about it. It was your first one. Uh, how did you guys do it? How did you kind of fund it? Was it his money? Was it a combination? Yeah. So the, the way that we funded this one, um, it was a three and a half percent down FHA loan for the purchase. And although we probably could have came up with the renovation, it was about 10,000 total in renovation. Um, we actually utilize private money from Dylan's uncle, who's also my business partner on some of the deals that I bird. Um, what we did is we brought him in and we said, you know, hey, if, if you can fund the rehab budget up front, we'll split the house up as far as equity goes. So Dylan and I were 40-40 partners, and then his uncle Bob came in as a 20% partner to help fund that day one rehab. So really it was it was a great deal for Dylan and I. We had the security of, you know, if, if the rehab ran higher, if we needed more private money, we, we had an option and someone who was already in real estate because him and I had already done a deal together and he was very comfortable with the risk. So it ended up working out great for us because Dylan and I personally only had to bring about $3,000 of our own money to buy an asset that was at the time worth, you know, $125,000. So it was, it was great for us. We were able to come in pretty low money down. Um, the rehab itself, we lived, uh, as you guys have probably heard of, and I've, I've heard you guys talk about a lot of times when the house hackers move in to a property, you're moving into the unit that's a little bit more beat down. It's not as like functional. Mm -hmm. So uh, we moved in in February and kind of while we were living there, just fixing it up. We installed flooring, all new interior doors, paint, a lot of cosmetic. And then we actually ended up having to replace the furnace not too long after we moved in. Um, but it really transformed the space and and uh, it allowed us to rent it very, very easily as soon as we moved out and, and went on into our second house hack. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's sort of a entrepreneurial bug, you know, like it's just an, yeah. a natural instinct. Almost everyone we talk to, all my good friends, like we just uh, somehow know before we, you know, even on our first deal when we have no idea what we're doing, you know, uh, right. most people just just naturally move into the smaller unit, the worst unit, the place yeah. that gets them the most return on their equity. Yeah, so, absolutely. And that's that was kind of the thought process for us. We were like, if, if we're able to get in, um, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable and living in a unit that at the time was not that nice. By the time we moved out, it was a very comfortable home. Um, you know, modern floor colors, modern wall colors. It just, it just felt really nice to kind of go through the whole transition. You, you, you put your head down for two or three months, get through the rehab, and then you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor for, you know, the rest of the time that you're there. Yeah, absolutely. So a uh, couple things, how did, you know, you had a little bit of a background in business, um, you know, doing that with psychology in, in college. How did you guys, uh, being new, kind of decide to structure 40-40-20? Uh, and, and what was that process like? You know, I'm sure yeah. it was a little bit intimidating being your first one. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a little bit of a learning curve um, for all of us. So this was um, Dylan's first deal. This was my second deal. And this was Bob's second deal in real estate um, in general. So we really just kind of all came together. We we spoke about where our, our pain points were, what we need. And for Dylan and I, again, we had the down payment. We were, we were comfortable with that. It was just all the additional capital needed for the renovation. So, you know, when you talk about doing a low money down loan for house hacking and you're, and you know, for us, we were splitting maybe a $6,000 down payment. That's pretty manageable. You know, we were, we were both in school at the time or transitioning out. So we weren't, you know, super liquid. And having that backing of that, you know, $7,500 to $10,000 renovation budget funded for us, that gave us like a sense of security and just comfortability that we were able to move forward with the deal. Um, kind of fast forward to uh, current state with that. So um, the, uh, the private money partner that we had in there, Dylan's uncle, we've actually been able to um, pay him off from that additional or that initial equity that he put into the deal. So Dylan and I were able to get back to a 50, 50 state and then, you know, give, give Bob a return on his investment as well. So it ended up coming full, full cycle and it and ended up working out really well for everyone. Um, but it's definitely something that I, I would do again if I had the opportunity just because it gave me that, that security. So, so Drew, my co-host, uh, he did something similar in his first deal. He's in a very uh, high, mar high end market. Um, expensive market. And for his first deal, he did not have the money. So he partnered on an FHA loan, similar thing, uh, but he didn't take on a third partner for, uh, so to speak, for the renovation. Sure. Talk to how you ended that. Obviously it was a 20% partner, but uh, you know, maybe what did that look like as far as his payoff? Um, you know, you, you said you rewarded him at the end. Like what, what did that look like? Sure. So the really nice thing about um, continuing to do business with both Bob and Dylan is um, one of the, the the two duplexes that we have under contract, which we'll probably get to that going forward. Um, Bob, essentially, if, if I'm able to find a property, get it under contract um, for a really great price, we essentially negotiate a, some level of a wholesaler finder's fee into our deals. And that's just kind of how we partner um, our structure, our partnership. So given that the business is rolling forward, there's more acquisitions to be had. Um, because I lined up the two duplex that we currently have under contract, um, he was able to kind of assign a value to each one of those. And then instead of doing any sort of equity into those properties themselves, we thought it might be a good idea to actually move the equity over into the initial property, the initial house act that we did, just to kind of make things clean and simple. 
Um, Bob's an accountant by trade. So the, the 40, 40, 20, I think was driving him crazy a little bit. So the 50, 50 makes a little bit more sense for everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, by leveraging the, the wholesale or the finder's fee that Bob and I negotiated, we were actually able to move that back um, into the original deal. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's get into your second deal. You finish this deal. You gain a lot of confidence. Uh, you do well. I assume you got runners in there and you guys uh, felt a lot more confident being a landlord and taking on some of those responsibilities and challenges. Talk about uh, deal number two. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The The first deal was definitely proof of concept for us. We just wanted to make sure that um, the way that we idealized the way the process would go, that we could actually execute. So being that I recently got the job in downtown Cleveland with Fund That Flip. A lot of my roommates that were house hacking, living with us, um, they were all living and working around the Cleveland area or wanting to move there. So we wanted to find a property that was close to Cleveland, um, but not something where we'd, we'd have to pay an absorbent amount of money um, just to, to get downtown. So we ended up finding a property about 10 minutes to the west of downtown Cleveland. Um, it's a duplex as well. So we we found this on the MLS. Uh, Dylan, my my house hacking business partner, his mom and his sister are both real estate agents. So they're very familiar with our process. And to any of the listeners or anyone that is looking to get into house hacking, um, having an agent that understands and really thoroughly um, gets the whole house hacking process and and the trial and error of making offers and needing the low money down loan, um, it's pretty critical just to have a agent that's patient and understands what you're looking for. So we ended up so finding to, to go in yeah. on that point, um, because I'm an agent, right? And all, no one knows what, you know, basically what it is. I mean, they understand the concept, but they don't know, understand anything behind it. How do you, I mean, you had a, a personal connection, but how do you go about someone, you know, in middle America that, you know, is just kind of drawing from a hat uh, for a realtor? How do you find that? Sure. And I think one thing that I've, I've heard investors talk about time and time again is there is always a vetting or um, interview process with contractors, tenants. So the same level of screening that you would take to a tenant or to a contractor, you'd want to do the same thing with your agent and, you know, sit down, have coffee, lunch, whatever it is, and really just express what you're looking for. Um, I, I have friends right now who are also interested in house hacking the, the process. And we talk about their relationship with their agent. You know, some of them have really good luck in that the agent understands that, you know, what they're looking for, the price point they're looking to get in at, and that it is a temporary one-year occupancy so they can move on, buy another duplex, and replicate the process. Some agents that aren't familiar with that specific strategy may not see as much of the need for us to get in at a low price point, to be more concerned about, you know, the one-year turnover. Um, you know, they're giving you advice as if you were buy and hold or living in that property as your primary residence for a long period of time, which has a little bit different implication when you're buying at the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so that second deal, talk about how you find, how you found it. You said the MLS, but how did you fund that particular one? Uh, and then going forward, how did you find your tenants, uh, and things of that nature? Yeah, I think you did a little bit of a rehab on this one as well. We did. Yeah. So this, this property, like you said, we found on the MLS, um, we ended up doing a 5% down conventional loan. Um, we had already tied up our FHA on the first property. Um, I was actually reading um, Craig Kirloff's book from Bigger Pockets on the, on the way home from uh, out of state. And I actually didn't even realize that I could do a three or 5% down conventional loan. So um, Dylan and I, in the meantime, we're actually looking to refinance our, our FHA to be able to open up that eligibility 
to move into the, the Cleveland duplex. But after reading that and understanding that we didn't have to, it was, it was great. So we ended up getting a 5% down conventional loan on that. So luckily for us, the, the property was fairly turnkey. Um, the, the previous seller had put new carpet, paint, um, a lot of the cosmetic things were done. The, the thing that we did on the second floor, which was the one that we were living in, is we changed a layout and we added a bedroom, which was, was really helped us because we have four people that we were transitioning from our first house hack in our unit now into this one. So we were coming from a three bedroom duplex and this property at the time was only a two bedroom duplex, uh, both floors. So they had, it had an oversized formal dining room that was connected to the living room that we said, hey, let's transition this into a, a front bedroom. So we ended up framing on the walls, adding a couple doors, framing in the closet. And um, it's it's very functional. Um, I know, as you've probably seen and, and others have seen, if you walk through some duplexes or especially student housing where they convert a bedroom, it, it really just chops up the, the layout of, of the home. We got really lucky with the layout of this where it, it just feels pretty natural and we're not really sacrificing a whole lot. So by doing that, um, we were able to get all three of us, all four of us comfortably living in the three bedroom unit. And um, yeah, it's, it's worked out really great so far. Yeah. And a small change like that can a add a lot of value. I've, I had, uh, I've had a bunch of experience with doing that. Um, and I mean, the return on equity on something like that is just off the charts, right? Because like you said, I think you said something about $3,000 uh, in total, basically for this renovation, right? And that includes yes. adding this bedroom. Yeah, I mean, I, I've literally added a bedroom for like five or $600, um, right. you know, and and gotten a five or six or seven or $8,000 evaluation when I got the new appraisal just off that additional bed, bedroom. Um, right. You know, and, and sometimes higher. And so, yeah, huge return on equity on that. Yeah, absolutely. And like one thing that we started to look at initially is we knew that we had to get either a uh, three bedroom, two bedroom duplex or a three bedroom, three bedroom. That's what we were coming from with our first deal. There's four of us that were wanting to live together again from the, the previous house hack. So we were having a lot of trouble in our area finding a six bedroom duplex. So every place that we were walking through, we're like, how can we make this work? How can we convert this? So as opposed to settling, moving into a, you know, two bedroom duplex where, you know, one of our roommates wouldn't be able to live with us or we would just be very uncomfortable. Um, you know, we got pretty fortunate. We found this, we were able to convert it. And uh, again, it's, it's very functional. And as you said, it's, it's probably raised the value, you know, somewhere close to $10,000 just from the, from the adding the bedroom. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, kind of touching back on the point with conventional, right? Three or 5% and you didn't uh, necessarily know about it. It is, it, you know, 5% down is, is kind of the traditional route. Um, something that a lot, you know, a lot of people don't know is you can go down to 3% conventional. Um, I've even seen 1% down conventional, but uh, what, what, what comes with that is uh, all they, t all they make you do is go through a course. Um, I have a client right now that is doing it. He went, you know, he thought he could do five. I, put him in touch with the lender that I use, got him down to 3%. And uh, it just takes a course. And, um, you know, it, it is a great way to go. Uh, conventional is a lot, a lot of times way easier to get into. FHA has a lot of guidelines, you know, as far as trip hazards and, and a lot of the uh, hair pulling things that they make you go through, uh, kind of the close on the deal. And conventional could be a great way to go if you can qualify for it. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what our thought press was. So when we were going through the initial house hack purchase with the FHA loan, 
we had several inspections, um, several items that we had to fix before the we even closed on the property. And it kind of made our first transaction a little bit more painful than what we had anticipated. So, um, but having that done as our first experience, it was all downhill from there essentially with, with future house hacks and getting the conventional loan lined up. So ours was actually a 5% down. Um, I, I hadn't heard about being able to do the 3% and, and taking a course. So I'll, that's uh that's super intriguing and interesting to me, but, uh, yeah, it ended up working out pretty well. And that's kind of what our model is going forward. So every year we're going to do the same thing, get a, get a conventional loan and just, just keep house hacking, keep rolling it. Yeah, it's pretty simple. They say it's four to six hours, but uh, my buddy did in like 45 hours, 45 minutes. But, you know, it's just a yeah. simple course, uh, educating people on the process of loans and going forward and paying over off 30 years. But, sure. uh, but yeah, I did a 203K for my first actual house hack, man. It took me almost four months to close. It was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, kind of transitioning, right? Um, you did do renovations on this, but you didn't maybe complete the Burr, uh, you know, formation of, of pulling money out at the end. Let's go into your Burr deals. You did a couple of those. Uh, talk sure. about the process with that. I know you had private money, I believe, that funded this. Talk a little about private money to start, sure. how you developed that relationship. I have a feeling I know who your private money is. Yeah. But like, how does somebody go about developing those relationships and uh, talk about those deals? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my story might even be a little bit untraditional in that my house hacks were not my first deals. So the first deal that I actually did was the bird deal. Um, so I'd been consuming a lot of bigger pockets content, just investing in general, and I was really, really excited about it. So, you know, everywhere I would go, I would try to strike up conversation with people, letting them know like, hey, I'm interested in real estate. I'm learning. You know, I, I'm not super experienced, but I'm passionate. I have energy and I'm, I'm really willing to learn. So I was actually at a uh, my my friend Dylan that we house hacked together. I was at a family event of his a couple of years ago where I was talking to a, a group of his family members about investing in real estate and how, you know, it's something I really want to get into. Dylan's uncle, Bob, so the one that was on the uh, the first house hack with us as the 20% equity partner, he was there and you know he was intrigued by the idea. He had done a lot of stock investing. He's a pretty high W2 income earner. So he's you know very cerebral as a partner and, and very into the investing world, but had never really ventured into real estate. So him and I got to talking, he wanted to, to fund, he was willing to let me do the operations and, and just kind of see where, where we could go. Um, so that was around, I think November of 2018. And then shortly after about six months later, we closed on our first duplex that was in the city that I grew up in uh, growing up. So um, a little bit of a, a plot twist there. So while Bob and I were planning, getting everything ready and getting ready to make our offer, I actually got offered an internship in Washington, DC um, for an HR position. Cause at that point, that was kind of my career trajectory with the industrial psych. I wanted to do some sort of HR consulting or business consulting. So I had an out-of-state internship and we had just closed on a property um, in the middle of June. So my first deal, I was actually doing general contracting of a complete remodel um, from you know a seven hour drive away. So that that presented its challenges, and it was immediately um, you know a struggle. But it was something that I was prepared for working for the general contractor the previous like year and a half to two years. I was very comfortable with you know talking with subcontractors, managing the rehab process. So it kind of gave me a little bit of uh, leg up confidence wise to be able to, was I actually ready? I mean, I don't know, but you know, looking back, uh, obviously I'm glad that, that we did it. So um, just to quickly run through the numbers on that, we purchased for 62,000 
we renovated for about 25,000. So we were about 87 all in. It appraised for 88,000. So we were able to pull out 75% of that back out of the deal. Um, so we ended up having around 60 grand after closing costs. So we were able to return back to ourselves and then roll that into our next deal. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so uh, talk about that next deal uh, of your Burr strategy. Sure. Yeah. So with that $60,000 that we pulled out of the initial Burr, um, we became super interested in looking for a another property. And up until this point, our main strategy was looking for duplexes and any sort of small multifamily. We just really liked that model and really believed in it. Um, however, we had a, uh, a connection with someone who owned a single family house. They were a landlord by accident where they inherited the property and they just weren't really interested in, in doing much with the property anymore. And they, they would prefer just to sell. So you know, this was our first experience with an off-market deal. We negotiated a, a great sale price for them and for us as well. Um, so this was a three-bedroom, about a thousand square feet, single-family home. We purchased it for thirty-five cash out of that sixty thousand that we got back from the the original Burr. Um, we renovated for about twenty thousand, so fifty-five k all in, and this ended up appraising for around eighty. So we were actually able to pull out more than a hundred percent of our capital into this. So now this is what this pile that we're now going to be rolling into the duplexes is how we're going to do the next deal. That's awesome. And did you buy these duplexes uh, cash or kind of like 20% down with this money or? Yeah. So these, because they're, so they're, they're two duplexes side by side. Um, and it's in a little bit more of an expensive area than what we've traditionally been doing the burrs where it's a little bit more manageable about hundred K and under was kind of our range. Um, with these two duplexes, they're around hundred K each for the purchase price. So we couldn't quite get to an all cash position on that. But the nice thing is because we were able to burst successfully pull our capital back out. Now, when we go to do the 20% down, uh, commercial loan on these properties, you know, we're, we're still using that same amount of money that we had on day one from back in 2018. So mm -hmm. that recycling of, of money and the, just the compounding effect of being able to, to acquire properties through that process. I mean, it, it's something that obviously, you know, and a lot of investors, uh, they love the birth strategy. It's one of the most tried and true methods that, that are out there. So, um, if you're able to partner with someone who, who has private money and negotiate any sort of equity deal that way, um, I mean, obviously I'm a, I'm a huge proponent for that. So let's talk, let's dive into that because uh, partnerships are generally either, uh, you know, sunshine and roses or they fall flat on their face, right? There's really not yeah. a whole lot of gray area when it comes to partnerships. Uh, talk a little bit about, obviously this is your best friend. You guys probably go way back, uh, but sure. talk a little bit about how people should approach these types of situations and sure. negotiate these types of situations because uh, a lot of them don't work out uh, and obviously sure. yours has. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And like you said, I feel like a lot of people that you've talked to in business that have gotten a business with family or gotten a business with friends, a lot of the times, you know, that is the thing that sometimes separates people from that friendship or relationship that they have um, is when the business goes south or, you know, some sort of disagreement happens. I think the most important thing is if you set the expectation from day one, and we actually do formal partnership operating agreements or an LLC operating agreement for every deal that we do, just to keep things very clean on the beginning, having that transparency from day one prevents a lot of the issues, conversations, or arguments down the road from even happening. So for example, with, with Dylan and I on the house hacking side of things, we got a general partnership agreement where we kind of ran through a lot of the scenarios of, you know, what if one of us wants to sell? What if one of us wants to, you know, move in a family member? We've kind of already worked that out on the front end. So now that we have it on paper, we're transparent with each other, we're comfortable with how we want to structure it. 
again, it really just prevents any of those conversations from coming up in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and the biggest thing a lot of time is is like long term goals, right? And and maybe maybe character wise, right? I mean, I get presented all the time with potential partnerships and potential deals, and um, the majority of time, I mean, I, I'm a very good. Uh, I understand character and I can quickly recognize good character from bad character. It's just sure. uh, something that I'm really good at. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, from partnerships, I've done quite a few partnerships now in, in different ventures. It's always been based on long-term goals and character. You know, is this somebody that, you know, I want to, uh, you know, that I would, wouldn't mind hanging out on Sunday, you know, just, yeah. just chilling, you know, just character based, somebody that's going to be there for the long run, somebody that, uh, isn't just motivated by money, even though money's a, a crucial part of this world and and something that you should focus on. Is it something bigger for them? And that's how sure. I've always treated partnerships. And and then, like you said, clearly defining it. Uh, I did a flip with a partner, and we had clearly defined roles. We were really good at exactly. it. Uh, but most of the partners partnerships I I see, they have similar traits. They have similar skills, right? And that's why they're drawn to each other. Uh, and it, it almost never works out great because they don't decide who's going to be the decision maker. And that's the biggest thing, right? Uh, you have to decide up front and you probably attest to this, who's going to be the decision maker when tough times come, right? When everything's going good, it doesn't matter. But when things go bad, you have to clearly define it. And luckily for me, I, I partnered with an old timer who had done, you know, uh, you know, many, many, many deals and he was the decision maker at, at crunch time. Right. And I was totally cool with that. We never had a crunch time. But, you know, you have to be really, really clear with that um, because that's when things go away. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Brad, one of the things you said that I think is most important is like the alignment of of your mission and your goals. So, like, for example, um, with our most recent bird deal that we did, it ended up coming out pretty well, appraising around 80,000. You know, any any person who didn't have the same buy and hold long term vision and long term strategy, they might have said, Hey, let's sell this. Why don't we cash out on the twenty-five thousand equity we created? You know, we'll 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 sell it. We'll split the money, and we'll just have that immediate satisfaction and gratification. And because Bob and I had set the expectation, like we are buy and hold investors, we are burring to be able to build up a rental portfolio, and this is our goal. Um, that conversation didn't even come up because we had that same alignment, that same long-term goal of owning a real estate portfolio of rentals. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's a huge thing. If you know, if a flipper and someone who was a uh, buy and hold investor wanted to partner, there, there'd be some friction there just because the, your, your, your micro process and your micro goals might be the same in that you want to fix and renovate and repair the, the property, but your exit strategy and how long you're willing to wait, that's, that's where the deciding factor comes in. Yeah. Yeah. And you really do have to have these tough conversations up front um, because they may be intimidating and you might, you know, feel like you'll lose a friendship or, or whatever over it. But it's it's just so much better than having that conversation in the middle of each person having, you know, their hard earned money involved in the deal. And I mean, things go south real quick. So uh, so let's kind of move on from that Um, equity partnerships like, you know, just obviously picking a partner is important. Structuring a a deal is also important. Um, And some people bring the money. Other people bring the legwork. Some people bring a little bit of both. Uh, sure. you know, you did a 40, 40, 20 on your first deal, and then you transitioned to 50, 50, uh, talk about like the benefits and the pros and cons and how, if somebody wanted to do all the legwork and just want to bring in money, how should they go about trying to structure that? Yeah. So I think there's a decision that needs to be made and this is kind of a per investor decision. So obviously, um, 
taking on debt is a lot cheaper than taking on equity. So, um, you know, for, for a lot of these properties that I'm, that I'm partnered on, if I were able to get a hard money loan, a private money loan with some sort of fixed interest rate and be able to hack the deals by myself. Yeah. You know, I'd be able to complete the project, run the operations and then retain hundred percent of the property. So that has its advantages for certain people and, um, you know, people that want to take on the projects by themselves for me, just because I was, getting into real estate while still in graduate school and trying to really learn like how I was going to make it work and really do the proof of concept. The partnership gave me a lot of security. And also, um, you know, my dad used to always say I would rather have half of a watermelon than a whole grape. So that was kind of the uh, mentality that I approached it with. I'm like, you know, I can, I can wait, save up five years to get up the capital to do enough of these deals by myself. But in the meantime, I mean, I can build a portfolio within that five-year period of just splitting projects 50-50. So I think the way that you structure those partnerships, it really comes down to the the two individuals or however many individuals are in the deal. To give you an idea of how Dylan and I structure the house hacks, and then I can explain how we structure the burrs. So on the house hacking side, um, because we're sharing the property, we bring equal capital to the closing table and the equal capital for all renovations. However, because I do more of the contractor management during the rehab process and also the project man- or the property management and tenant management, what Dylan and I have negotiated is um, I'll get a 10% cut of any total renovation amount that gets done to the property just to kind of compensate me for my time. So even though we're 50-50 partners, if I'm putting a little bit more legwork in on the remodel side and managing the contractors, managing the materials, um, Dylan understand that there's a value to that. And we agreed that a 10% premium on whatever that total renovation amount is, is what I would be paid or either gifted in equity, depending on you know how it worked out. And in addition to that, whenever we move out of a house hack and it becomes fully occupied by people other than ourselves, I'll also get a 10% um, monthly property management fee based on the income. So our first house hack, um, you know, I manage it for free while I'm living there. It's kind of, Dylan was also helping manage it while we were there. Uh, It was a learning process for both of us. And then after we've transitioned out and it's more of a traditional property manager role where you're doing it from distance, um, again, we assigned a value to that. We understand that it's it's needed and it's just a deal that we worked out and felt comfortable with. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, negotiation, everything's everything's on the table. You just have to fill out who's gonna do the legwork and it's kinda cool. I mean, you know, you do you obviously are the day to day operator and, and he's a little bit more hands off, it sounds like. Uh, which yep. is which is great, and you guys were able to negotiate that. Now let's let's talk to the people that are a little bit more like uh, maybe me, right? That are um, they like the the proof of concept themselves before they bring people in, right? Uh, I I talk to a lot of people that are like this, They're like man, like you know, I'm I'm sort of open to the idea of partnering, but like you know. I meet a lot of people that are very protective of their character and their word and things of that sure. nature. And they like yep. proof of concept. Talk about somebody attempting to do, cause you do rental funding right through your, through your company, right? Which is hard yes. money. You can go the private money route. Uh, I have done a little bit of private money, uh, but talk about the hard money, hard money side where you want to actually do a burr, uh, maybe house hack, but just a burr rental in general. I know you guys do a little bit of that. Talk about somebody that would want to do that uh, themselves, how, how that could be structured, how they could actually, go from with you guys to either a bank loan or or maybe even how you guys carry it as a, a sort of bank as well. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of start with our um, our initial product, which is that 
fund that flip bridge loan. So and then someone who wanted to, to purchase a property, um, renovate it, and then convert that into a rental, um, we're actually like a one-stop shop for that product. So just to give you know a concrete example, if someone wants to purchase a property for, it's called 70,000, maybe put a $20,000 uh, renovation into it and have it appraised for somewhere around 125. So fund that flip, we would be able to offer a bridge loan that ranges anywhere from three to 12 months that'll allow that investor to bring, in some cases, 10% down on the purchase, fund the rehab, um, interest only payments during the duration of the loan. And then once that has been completed, um, we can actually roll that individual directly into our rental product, which does not have a seasoning period, which, you know, as you've probably experienced, is super valuable. So um, more conventional local community banks, they have, from my experience, at least a six month, sometimes longer seasoning period. So mm -hmm. for people that are really efficient and maybe they're turning these properties over in a, a few months, or maybe the property they bought was very under market, but however, did not need that much renovation work. Um, being able to back it into one of these types of loans that fund that flip and now the rental product with fund that rental of what we offer is you can do it immediately free up your capital and then just the replication. So instead of waiting six months between and being able to only do two deals a year, if you're able to crank through each property in three months, now you double the amount of properties you can do in a, in a 12 month time frame. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people's objections to that is the cost, but if you're able to do it in a month or two, right? And I'm sure that's maybe common in in things like this, right? Um, to do a, a mediocre size renovation, not maybe down to the studs or something, but sure. uh, you know, and do it in two months. The the cost of that can't be any more than than what you cost in closing costs. You know, and takes you thirty days to close anyway uh, at sure. a minimum. Yeah, exactly. And I think. Um, you know, one of the things to consider with with any sort of hard money loan is, you know, the interest is going to be a little bit higher than what you experience if you were just to go get a traditional 30 year loan or even like a 20 percent down investor loan. Um, the, the difference is you're forcing so much appreciation and equity in these properties that um, the the interest is a is a cost that is worth it, given how much volume you can do with that same amount of money. So again, if, if you're able to crank through, you know, two times to three times the amount of properties, given that opportunity to pursue hard money and then back it into a cash out refinance product, um, to me, that's a super valuable way to invest just because you're able to do things at more speed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so what what would that cost kind of look like uh, compared to maybe a traditional um, closing costs? Do you, guys, sure. do you guys have calculations based on that? Yeah, we do. Um, and again, this is something that's going to range depending on yeah. the experience of the borrower, how much volume they do with us. Um, a, a kind of typical um, hard money loan from us would be around 2%, two points at origination, around 10% interest. Um, and again, that can fluctuate up or down based on experience and, and uh, you know, experience with us. At so so tell, the, well. tell the listeners a little bit about points, what that actually means sure. for those that don't know. Yeah. So, so points would be, um, you know, if there was a $100,000 loan that someone wanted to book with fund that flip in order to purchase a property and then have rehab costs in that as well, at the time of closing, that individual would pay 2% of that total loan amount in the form of fee. So on a $100,000 loan, that would be a $2,000 fee at closing in the form of points. And then the 10% interest, that would be an interest only payment on that $100,000 over the course of the life of the loan. So be it 
three months, six, nine, or 12, or whatever that term is, um, you would pay interest-only loans until the property was completed. Once you sell or refinance, whatever your exit strategy might be, you pay off the principal of the loan, and now you're kind of free to replicate the process. And 2% is pretty, uh, what is it, probably 1.5 to 1.8% that people pay in actual origination fees of a, of a typical loan? Exactly. So it's pretty, it's pretty much, it's pretty uh, similar. Yeah, it's it's not too far off. And again, um, just just with the structure of hard money and, and how it works and the value that comes with it, I'll, most of the investors that we work with, they're willing to you know pay that that slight premium on it just because of you know the, we're able to take individuals who have a limited capital capital stack, maybe their private money lenders running out of money, maybe. Um, their bank that they currently work with and have a relationship with is is capping them out on how much they can they can borrow. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of like uh, you know gas on the fire in a way because we have a capital stack that we're able to help investors um, draw down on and then just accelerate their business. So let's uh, let's give a scenario where we actually do you know have a rental that you fund the renovation. We're three months into it. We're done. We probably have to get a new appraisal uh, going forward. Do you guys do thirty-year amortization? Is that is that uh, kind of what you do after that? And then we what do, would yeah. an, what would an interest rate? Uh, t- you know, obviously it bases on a lot of things, uh, credit score and and you know, yes. um, working relationships, things of that nature. But what does sort of that look like uh, going forward? Is it pretty typical for a bank compared to a bank? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and we um we just went through actually a refinance of our uh, one bird deal that we did. So I'm. I just had like a side-by-side comparison between what a local community bank would charge versus what we at fund that flip and fund that rental, what we charge here. So as far as once your renovation is complete on your burr and you're now looking to do a cash out refinance of that property to free up that capital and redo the process, um, our origination on the 30-year product is anywhere from about you know, 1.25 to 1.75 points. So it's pretty competitive to what your local bank will charge you. And as far as uh, closing points would cost and on the interest rate, again, it's, it's not too different than what a local bank would be. We're anywhere from about five and a half to six and a half uh, rate interest. So, you know, again, the, the main advantage with, with us being, there's no seasoning period. We can typically close within three weeks. Um, so we operate just at a, at a high speed and a, at a high level of uh, execution. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. So let's transition to something what you talk a lot about, which is uh, broadcasting your passions to the world. You talked about how you found, uh, we, you haven't talked about actually, but uh, you, you found the two duplexes kind of this way. Talk a little bit about that, being young investors uh, and sort of broadcasting your goals, your visions, your dreams, your passions. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that I really kind of take to you is this idea of like the law of attraction, right? So the things that you want in your life, um, if you if you keep them at the forefront, you you talk about them, you essentially speak them into existence. It's something that I, I really um, learned about and really believe in. So with real estate investing, it's kind of applied to where um, in a tactful way, whenever I get the opportunity, I love to tell people that I am interested or am currently investing in real estate. Um, you just never know who you're sitting next to, who you're talking with, what what maybe they they are interested in and maybe that is your real estate's in their wheelhouse and they're actually looking for a partner you just never know so a good example of this is um at our at our new house um i was coming home one day to receive an amazon package and i actually had missed the delivery so i got a notification that the package was delivered to a local um amazon hub which happened to be at this deli that was probably two blocks away from my house 
So I go to the deli. I'm there simply to pick my package and leave. And had I done just that, I would have missed the opportunity that I'm about to talk about. Um, so I'm in the store talking with the, the cashier, just kind of making small talk, um, letting him know I just moved into the neighborhood. I was interested about some fun things to do. And being in that location, I'd actually remembered that I had looked at two duplexes on that very street next to the deli when I was back during my shopping for house hacks. So I had, you know, talking to the, uh, the cashier, I said, you know, I'd actually offered on the two properties that were down the street. We go back and forth and it turns out the owner of the deli was actually the owner of those two duplexes right behind where the deli was located. So I got to talking, I became really excited. Um, he had actually taken the, the duplexes off market and kind of had changed his mind to sell them for the time being, just because he wasn't having great luck with selling. So I asked um, if I could have the seller's number speak to him. Um, I ended up coming back into the deli like the next day to talk to the owner. And we had a great conversation for about two hours, just about, you know, our personal lives, our investing careers, kind of like what our passions are. And um, long story short, that turned into us getting two duplexes in an area that we really, really liked under contract. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting them for a really good price under market. And the goal is to, to renovate these and do um, a cash out. So it's not burr in the sense that we're not buying with cash, but we do plan to force a good amount of uh, appreciation on this and then pull that back out, even though it won't be the full amount that we had invested. Yeah. And, and a lot of times it's not even anything magical about it. It's the fact that what your thought processes are, you pick up on small cues, right? And so when someone mentions really anything related to real estate, and that's something you spend your your whole you know day thinking about and week thinking about right. and year thinking about, right? These small cues lead into these large conversations. I see it all the time. And it happens to me all the time. It, it really is true. Yeah, it's it, it's honestly great. And I think when you're Again, just putting out your passion and you're letting people know what you're interested in. Um, people gravitate towards that when they see someone that has uh, drive, energy, and just interest in like growing and developing in whatever field that is. Um, and again, kind of tying this back to finding a good partner. You know, that's that's the way that I was able to land that initial partnership that that I got. I was just very passionate, um, well researched. You know, trying trying to be articulate about my knowledge and like my goals with real estate. And, you know, that if that comes across in a way that is attractive to other people and people that you want to do business with, it just makes it that much more easy to like uh, cross that bridge and, and get a partnership rolling if that's your goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about that. What are your goals uh, in real estate going forward? Yeah. So I um, this is something that I always tinker with because I um, someone once told me like you, you often massively overestimate what you can achieve in a year, but massively underestimate what you can achieve in 10. So I try to keep, you know, both my long term and short term goals kind of fluid to, you know, really adjust. So kind of as a short term, I'm I'm getting to the point where my goal by the end of 2021 is I'd like to be able to get to the point where my passive income has eclipsed my monthly expenses. So I'll essentially reach, you know, level one financial freedom where um, I have the option to get more creative with my nine to five job as opposed mm -hmm. to having to work something more formally. Mm -hmm. um, as far as long term goals, um, I, I read a book called Atomic Habits where the author talks about setting more process-oriented goals as opposed to outcome-oriented goals. So for the long term, the one thing that I really wanted to do is um, kind of step out from being like the day-to-day -day integrator 
and more into like the larger scale visionary of the real estate investing that I'm doing. So as opposed to being in charge of the day-to-day renovations, tenant management acquisition, my long-term goal um, is to be able to just kind of be more of the oversight and the visionary for what direction I'd like the business to go and have people that, you know, I've trained or that have, you know, joined the team that want to be able to integrate the day-to-day and just continue to move forward. And I think with that goal, your outcome measures of cash flow, uh, you know, assets under management, those things take care of themselves once you've built the system to be able to operate independently and just keep running forward. Absolutely. And, and that's a key point, you know, because a lot of people do get fixated on, on goals, um, you know, short term goals, like you said, massively overestimating what they can do. And in long term goals, they massively underestimate that. It really, that is such a true statement. Uh, I've heard a lot of times as well. And, uh, you know, fixating on process oriented goals is, is, is a is a key variable there. Right. And it's something to where uh, you can control where the outcome you generally can't control. Right. And, and people have massive mood swings based on whether they're achieving outcome oriented goals, you know, where, um, where it's literally outside of their control a lot of times. Right. Sure. And, uh, one of the things that I love about Chad Carson, if you're familiar with him from bigger pockets, he wrote a book and things of that nature, uh, who's somebody I look up to a lot is the fact that he says, you know, almost everyone, uh, you know, points to big goals and they want massive amounts of units and things of that nature. And, and he's, he's fixated on, on other things, right? Uh, a, his life motto is do what matters. Um, but then B, his, his goal is, is now actually eliminating units, eliminating the ones that, that aren't, you know, achieving his goals and, yeah. and, and trying to prune his, his thing. And I think that's important too. And, and putting a process, you know, he's, he's very much, he, he doesn't, you know, articulate it like this, but he just says, uh, basically, you know, I want to have a process to where I can replicate myself, um, put myself out of it, get units that, you know, that are a lot more hands off things. Yeah. And it's just like what you're saying. So it, it yeah, is and- true. And to apply this to maybe some of the listeners who have yet to do their first house act, maybe they're gearing up, they're getting ready. Um, Cause this was a mistake that I made at the very beginning is I wanted to, I set a goal that I want to buy a house tech, right? So that goal, it's, it's good in that it's specific. You want to get one property in a set period of time, but it doesn't help you build those habits that are going to allow you to achieve that goal. So an example, like instead of saying, I'd like to purchase a house hack by the end of 2020, if people were like, you know what, I want to go on two showings a, a week of properties that I like, or I want to submit one offer a month, whatever that is for that person that makes sense, it's feasible, but it's it's more of a process goal. The outcome of getting one property by the end of the year will take care of itself, I, I can assure you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, what do you think separates potential house hackers from those that actually do it? Because there is, there are a lot of people that, um, you know, you know, we talk about setting process goals, right. And that's important. Um, but a lot of times people fantasize about ideas, right. And, and maybe never, uh, have the work ethic or, or put in the process to, to be able to achieve that. What, what is, what is the difference between, uh, those that actually do it and those that don't? Yeah. And I think for me, this is kind of like a two faceted answer. I think, I think the first part of that is kind of like the self-confidence aspect. I think the biggest reason, um, I have a lot of friends that have been in my sphere that have saw me, you know, go through the two house hacks over the last year, and they are now both shopping and like looking for, for properties to do the same with. And the one thing that I noticed with them is they're like, you know, I don't have as much experience. I'm, I don't have as much knowledge or, you know, the specific type of information they want. Um, you know, they might not have, but you know, I, I hear the guys from bigger pockets say it all the time. And just in general, 
you never really are ready. There's never going to be a point to where you are objectively black and white, ready to go with, with really anything in life. I mean, you sometimes just kind of have to take that leap and, and, and get there. So I think the people that can wrap their head around getting confident or building confidence through education. And the second part is finding a mentor, um, finding a mentor for me in, uh, the capital partner with, with Bob, that was, kind of the confidence that I needed to be able to take that first leap, get that first bird deal. And, and the same thing with HowSec, you know, having that mentor slash partner um, was a model that worked really well for me and allowed me to overcome that confidence hurdle and say, you know what, um, I have I have backing here. I have other people that are interested in my success and we're going to do this together. And I think I think that's a huge thing for for people to really consider. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another thing is I see it all the time, people trying to hit home run deals. And and I've always yeah. taken the hard the hard route, right? I've done a lot of renovations. Uh basically all my my uh properties I've bought, I've done, you know, whether it was a flip or a house hack or whatever, uh, you know, I've done renovations where I think the the key to it um is hitting a single, right? And and, and finding a deal to where uh yes, yes, you want to try to find the best deal possible, but most people spend their entire, you know, they'll spend a year trying to find this, you know, unicorn deal where just getting into one deal that just breaks even, just as a break even deal, you literally, you'll literally learn a thousand, you could read a thousand books and it'll equate to that one deal, right? I mean, the things that I relate to my first deal, I lost every penny I had, you know I mean? I, I you know, I, I had a tenant that got murdered. Uh, it was just a nightmare, right? I lost the property. It, you know, that was my first deal, but, but based on that, it allowed me to learn a lot of things. It gave me a lot of barriers it, it I internalize it the fact that I wasn't good enough I need to learn a lot more right and so um, if you if you can literally just break even you'll be a thousand times farther ahead than I was um, and you know I think a lot of people sit there and spend a lot of time trying to hit find this home run deal when just finding a deal that'll break even you'll learn so much you'll gain the confidence the confidence is the key it's a huge barrier yeah yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, to your point of like wanting to hit a home run, that's where a lot of the like analysis paralysis comes in because people before they get started and before they've had the opportunity to, to understand, you know, what all the expenses are, what like a reasonable rent rate would be for those areas. And they're just making assumptions. Um, a lot of the times on the front end, you're being as conservative as possible. And that's causing you to look at every deal and be skeptical about it. So, you know, you're looking at a deal like, oh, you know, what if I have two months of vacancy? What if the rehab costs double what it's going to? And you create all these scenarios in your head that, you know, you're being conservative, but sometimes to the extent where you're being too conservative and it's preventing you from seeing a great deal right in front of you. So to your, to your point, if you can find something and especially with house hacking, it's a lot easier to get that return on investment that makes it worthwhile for you. Um, if you can just get something, a single or a double even, I mean, yeah, that's, that's huge because the processes that you'll learn throughout, you know, that first transaction, it's going to give you downward momentum as you move forward. And I tell people all the time when it comes to house hacking, there's two returns that I look at. Uh, and they really have nothing to do with the return on, you know, equity or, you know, ROI or anything like that. It's uh, the 30%. So the average person spends 30 to 40% on housing, right? Yep. That's the that's cost, whether it's mortgage, whether it's rent, it doesn't really matter. That's where you're at, right? So there's 30%, okay, that you're probably going to save. That's that's more than any deal you ever get as far as an ROI standpoint, right? The second thing is the return on confidence, right? That That's kind of a barometer that, that I use. I mean, uh, you know, you literally learn so much. And even if the deal goes you know, mediocre at best or below average, you know, I've never, I mean, like I said, I lost everything on my first deal, but it gave right. me the confidence to do it again. It gave me the confidence to say, all right, I sucked. 
and that I did a lot of things bad. Let's go try this again. Let's go learn a lot. And something I didn't realize when I was younger um, that I see now in a lot of people, like you said, uh, analysis paralysis is what Robert Kiyosaki talks about. Because I didn't have a high-end formal education, I never saw things as right and wrong. I saw things as uh, there's a lot of gray area because if I just work harder than anyone and I'm just willing to, you know, spend, you know, work a lot of 16 hour days uh, because I did have a you know, W2 job, like I can make up for anything, right? If something yeah. goes bad, I'll just work through it. I like, you know, like, uh, and so it didn't really matter to me. And I see a lot of people, right? They, they get this analysis paralysis because they need the perfect deal because it's either right or it's wrong, you know, yeah. and, and there is no gray line in there for them. Uh, and that's where they get stuck. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think um, I, I probably heard it on this podcast. I, I've heard, you know, Craig talk about it as well. Um, house hacking is like investing on training wheels. I mean, in a way you're, you're kind of, you're, you're doing it to where you have minimal risk. I mean, even if the property is quote unquote losing money, the rent savings that you would, or the rent expense that you would otherwise have if you live somewhere else and were paying another landlord, I mean, that would essentially offset a loss if you had one as far as month to month uh, cash flow goes. So, you know, if, if you're thinking about getting into real estate, um, obviously house hacking is a great way to do it just because of all the built-in benefits and like returns that you're talking about and like the return on confidence is huge. Once you do a few of those, um, your confidence level to go do a strictly investor, non-owner occupancy loan and, you know, get through a deal. I mean, it's, it's just, it's exponential at that point. Yeah. You know, and I, th I feel like as a realtor to people that, you know, house hack and things like that, my, my key role uh, it, it not even planned, but it's just confidence, just loaning my confidence, uh, sure. because, you know, so it, it is such a big investment, you know, to, to a first time, uh, investor, right. And it's everything they've ever worked for, right. Even if it's a, you know, a, a, a relatively small amount, like you talked about maybe three grand, I think you said was your first investment. That was everything to you. Right. Yeah. And I can, you know, I lost everything that I put into my first place. Right. And so like, sure. I sympathize for that. And it's really is just a loan on confidence, um, that I'm giving to my clients because that's, that's what they need. They don't really need the X's and O's. We go over that. Right. Um, but a lot of times it's just the confidence to be able yeah. to do it, you know? And, uh, and yeah, I can certainly sympathize for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, a, a good point to kind of tie, tie back in with, with you being an agent, and having done house hacks and it's something you're very passionate about, I'm sure it's something that does give your clients a lot of confidence if that's what they're looking to do because they have someone who has done the process, they understand it thoroughly. So for anyone else that's looking to you know, get into a house hack, if you can find um, an agent that they themselves have house hacked or know of someone that does or works with house hackers, I mean, that's, you'll have a huge leg up in the, in the shopping process, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we, we do this all the time. People that DM us and stuff, we got a list of people around the country that are agents at house hack in, uh, several States, most of the States. Um, so yeah. if anyone wants to reach out to us, they can certainly DM us or whatever, and we can put you in contact. Uh, but let's go forward. You talked a little bit about books. Talk first about maybe, uh, you talked about atomic habits, which is a great book. Talk about yeah. your favorite business or mindset specific book. Yeah. So one of the, um, first books that I read like early on into my, you know, like financial independence journey of being just really interested was the millionaire next door. I think this was prior to me even getting into any sort of real estate specific understanding, but it really just taught me that, you know, the, the people that are very wealthy in America, um, it's not who you picture. It's not the person that's driving, you know, the, the Mercedes Benz around that's wearing the suit. It's not always the case. I mean, those individuals do exist. But oftentimes, you know, it's it's your neighbor that owns a hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, maybe drives like a two thousand five F one fifty, 
lives within their means and is just very conservative and they're just very smart with their money and they're not really trying to impress anyone with with their wealth. Those are the people that reach financial freedom at a very young age just because or more oftentimes um, because the external uh, affirmations are not as important to you. You're more focused on um, the the simple things, the things that get you by and the things that help you live a successful life. And again, the, the main point in this book is that the typical, the atypical millionaire that you picture in your mind of being, you know, flashy and affluent—it's not always the case. So, Mark McMahon, we've had on here a couple of times. He's one of my favorite people in the world, and he lives out in California, right? Expensive market, um, and, you know, and he's a deca millionaire. I mean, he's he's done very, very well for himself. But he he talks about this fact that you know, literally, it's there's no magic to this. And I even I I was listening to Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, if people are familiar with that, with yeah. him the other day. And there's, there's really no magic to this, right? Uh, Gary Vee was talking something like, if you make 40 grand, live like you make 27 grand. And there's, you know, over, over a period of time and how, uh, you know, he had a small one bedroom apartment and he downsized, he drove his, uh, I think it was his Grand Cherokee that was rusted out for, you yeah. know, 10 years. Uh, he basically lived off of 20 grand a year uh, while he was building his parents' wine business, right? And, and, and Mark talks about this all the time as well. You have to become a fundamentalist when you're, when you're young and, and you're bringing it up. Right. And I understand all the urges and the exterior forces, right. That come out of, and, and you know, the great marketers of the world that promote a lot of these things that we see as status symbols. But if you're going to be successful for a long period of time, you're going to have to have some level of discipline because you're not just going to develop it out of the blue. Right. And discipline yeah. starts with finances, having fun and doing, doing a lot of things is great. I do a lot of the same things too. But you have to be able to be a fundamentalist and save money and be able to like that book. That's an incredible book. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, if I may sneak one more book in on this side, it's it's kind of uh, maybe a little unconventional. But there was a book that I read that that uh, is titled What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. And that book is all about just kind of building your self-confidence and more of a global aspect of not just in business, but, you know, for anyone that struggles with self-confidence, be it insecurities that they have about themselves or, you know, their, um, their belief in themselves to achieve things with me. Um, you know, my, my main reason for picking this book up was with real estate before I got started. I, I didn't have the confidence. I wasn't really ready to take the leap. And I read this book and it really kind of helped me just understand what to kind of say to myself as far as, you know, I do have the experience. I, I do have the knowledge. I have the resources. And to really just kind of like, essentially you're reprogramming, you know, your, your subconscious in a way. And you would be amazed at how much that helps you get more aligned with what your goals are and kind of breaks down those barriers or that wall, those walls that your brain puts up in front of you a lot of times when you're looking to achieve something. Yeah, absolutely. And and reprogramming your subconscious isn't some magical thing. It's the fact that no. what you what you think about, what you put into your mind, what you sow, you reap, right? The whole the whole concept. Um and literally just even even if you're not digesting a book, if you're just listening to it and you have it on there, right? Your subconscious is picking up things. Exactly. Right. And when you when you read books like The Millionaire Next Door, uh, you know, like you're just reprogramming yourself to think, oh wow. Yeah, maybe it, this isn't magical. Like Mark, you know, Mark McMahon, like I said, he's, you know, he's he's a multi multi-millionaire and and he drives a 10-year-old Ford F150, right? And right. and you know, it, it's a functional truck. He's he, you know, he's got his own construction company and and all this, right? And and he's just like you you, you know, I developed over 
decades of being a fundamentalist in my finances, in my investing. He's like, why would I change now? He's like, I have no reason to change now. I mean, even though I have the money to go do whatever I want, I now value uh, experiences over things, you know, and, and, and that's all personal preference, but it is just becoming a, uh, you know, perfect, you know, somebody yeah. that places their priorities and works that out through their financial life. Exactly. So let's talk about real estate books. What's your favorite real estate book? Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm a big fan of bigger pockets. If you couldn't tell already, um, I read a lot of the books they, they put out. The one that I, um, really did like was the no and low money down book on real estate investing. Um, for me being a broke college student at the time, when I first wanted to get into real estate, that was super important to me. Like, how can I get into real estate with little or no money? Um, and the big things of that book that I took away from it was partnerships and house hacking. So that's what actually kind of turned me on to house hacking in the first place. I read this book. I'm like, you know, I want to be a real estate investor. How can I hack it? How can I do it with, you know, essentially, you know, no, no income being a full-time student. So, um, reading that book allowed me to understand that you don't need money. You can leverage, uh, OPM, right. Other people's money and get into, uh, real estate investing. And that really just opened up a whole new world for me and gave me some of that confidence to say, yeah, let me go seek out a partnership or yes, let's go make an offer on a primary residence that I can house hack. So that book is really important to me as far as like my early on development in real estate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if it was that book or if it was the uh, rental property, rental property manager, whatever Brandon Turner's other book is. Uh, yeah. But that's where I found out about house hacking, too. And um, I was flipping at the time. And it's kind of funny, you know, now being in this industry for five years, it doesn't matter what the climate is. There's going to be people that are on, you know, screaming bloody murder on both sides of it. Right. Uh, and yeah. but back then there was a lot of people. This was 2015, 2016 or whatever. Uh, and they were they were just talking about a housing crash. Right. The whole world's going to implode. Right. And I'm sitting there with yeah. all this anxiety with with flipping houses like, oh, my God, like, you know, this thing's going to tank. You know, I got to I got to get this property done or whatever. And um, that book was the one that turned me on to house hacking. And I already had a, a renovate, you know, a, a construction background a little bit. I was, I was pretty decent at it. I liked the GC role. I still, I still, you know, uh, am a GC on, on all my projects. And I was like, man, I can merge this and like pull money out at the end. And I don't have to have anxiety about it. Like, like, let, like let's, let's go, you know, but I think it was that book, uh, that, that, that taught me about uh, house hacking as well. Yeah. And, um, just to kind of piggyback off that, uh, another book, this kind of, for me, treads the line of both business book, lifestyle book, and real estate is Scott Trench's Set for Life. I cannot tell, that is probably the book that I refer the most to people and not even people that are into real estate. But for me, it's like the one thing kind of like we were talking about, right? The principles for millionaire next door, living within your means, getting comfortable with like your level of lifestyle and maintaining that. Scott talks about coming out of college and obviously in college, we all live in a way that's, you know, pretty, pretty slim where we're not we're not spending a whole lot of money or at least trying not to because we don't have a lot of income. If you can sustain that lifestyle as long as you possibly can coming out of college, um, it's a perfect transitionary time. Um, you know, and that's kind of what Scott talks about. It's like you're you're able to really leverage that and and put your money to work. So yeah. that book's also, you know, monumental in, in my development. And um, I've heard it called like the uh, rich dad, poor dad of our generation, which I, I really do believe. Yeah, no, that that might be my favorite book too. I read a lot. It sounds like you do as well. Uh, that might be my favorite book, and it certainly is my favorite book to recommend, especially to people our age. Um, Absolutely. But you know, he talks a lot about kind of like uh, Dave Ramsey does, right? And I don't mm -hmm. agree with everything Dave Ramsey talks about, but Dave Ramsey talks a lot about uh, the mindset 
behind his decision making. And he talks about it in that book. He talks about the financial runway. Right. And how him creating the financial runway was how he was able to take the leap and go to a, he worked for a startup like uh, bigger pockets, right? Because he had created a, you know, financial runway before he had even house hacked. Um, he was already just living like a college student outside of college. Uh, yeah. and it was able to free him to go make a career choice that a lot of people would have said, what are you doing? Like you already have right. a great corporate job. Why are you going to work for a startup that could implode? Right. Uh, and, and those decisions, like the freeing mindset behind being a fundamentalist at, in your finances can't can't even be put on a graph. Right. right. Because you're you, you, both of our decision making is not predicated on uh, our job or or, you know, where we're currently at. We have we have created I'm assuming for you as well. You have created systems. You have created the fluidity to to make spot decisions. Right. Be- because and Scott talks about that because he, you know, has set himself up and set, created this financial runway. He, he doesn't maybe set goals, you know, that are that are, uh, you know, outcome goals. He sets process goals. And when yep. decisions are set before him and because all, you know, he has created this process to get to that decision, he on the spot can make a decision like I on the spot make decisions that sometimes are like, what did I just do? But because I've prepared myself for these decisions when they come, you just have this freeing sense of taking them. And he talks yeah. all about that. His his decision to go for bigger pockets. It's it's my favorite book. Yeah, hands down. Like I said, the the book that I refer the most. I probably purchased that book four or five times just to gift it out to people. And I think the biggest thing to take away is no matter what level of like financial knowledge, business knowledge, or real estate knowledge that you have, you can take something away from that book and apply it immediately. Um, um, just I'll recap one more thing from his book. Say it was just really huge for me and a big thing for house hackers is. Your $3 a day Dunkin' Donuts coffee is not going to make or break your monthly budget, right? It's the large ticket items like your housing expense, your transportation expense with your car. Those sorts of things, if you can alleviate those, you can buy as much coffee as you want, and it's not going to have a material impact on your your personal budget. So that that's huge. Obviously, house hackers see that. Um, yeah. So I had the exact same epiphany when I read that book because, um, you know, I, I kind of find myself right in between like Robert Kiyosaki and Dave Ramsey, right? I'm a fundamentalist in one way, but I, but I obviously being in real estate and, and financing a lot. I mean, I love lowing no money down. That's my yep. goal and all of these, right? But on my personal side, I'm a little bit more like, you know, maybe Dave Ramsey. But the great epiphany I had from that book was fixed versus variable expenses, right? Because I used to beat myself up on, you know, coffee and, and, and things of that nature. But I, but if you look at it in a macro sense, like he does, right. The, the, you know, the, the one to 2% of your gross income that you spend on coffee, whatever that luxury is pales in comparison to the 30% you're saving by house hacking or the, you know, the 15% you do by buying your car cash rather than financing and, and, you know, needing to roll negative equity, you know, all that. And he goes into all that, the fixed versus variable epiphany I had from that book, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah. All right. So Brendan, where can people find out more about you? We appreciate you coming down. Your story is amazing. I'm sure a lot of people want to reach out to you, especially if they're in Ohio or, or even just people, people wanting to learn more about fund that flip, fund that rental. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah. So the, um, probably the three best ways would be, uh, through Instagram. So Brendan Q Bennett is my Instagram tag. Um, also via email. So Brendan.Bennett at fundthatflip.com. And then, um, also through LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a great way to get a hold of me as well. Um, I 
strongly encourage people to reach out. I love talking about real estate as you probably understand, you know, not everyone loves to have an hour and a half long conversation about real estate and rentals and the whole process. So like whenever I find other people that are just as passionate about it, which is one of the huge attractions for me to work at Fund That Flip and be surrounded by people that are very passionate about real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, it really excites me. So yeah, I really encourage anyone to reach out, especially if you're in the Cleveland market or surrounding areas. I have pretty good contacts for agents that are really comfortable with house hacking and a lot of contractors that do uh, renovation work. So I'm more than happy to open up my book and, and help people out. Perfect, man. We really, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you've added a lot of value to me, to our audience, uh, and I'm sure we'll have you back on after uh, after a few more deals you get you go under your belt here this year. Awesome, Brad. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Cool, man. We appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening. If you could do me a huge favor and go give us a five-star rating on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. It would really help us out. If we provided any value, please go do that. Otherwise, there's a lot of people who haven't subscribed. So go ahead and go subscribe and you'll get notifications when a new podcast episode is released. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day.